Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Karen Koch-Tesman, Senior Editor. Paul Bonanos, Associate Editor. And Josh Berlin, Head of Business Development. On this week's pod, takeaways from a roller coaster week for China biotechs and investors in the sector. Then we'll make our monthly trip to the distillery where translational research flows like whiskey from academia and biotechs alike. And Paul joins us to discuss two deals for our Deals and Focus segment. Aristea entered an agreement with Arena and another where Kumquat hopes to bear fruit with Lily. Can't make these puns up. All right, let's start with China. A volatile six days of trading in China biotech shares began with an announcement from the Chinese government that was implemented with shocking speed. The week ended with a statement by the chair of the US SEC, Gary Gensler, calling for greater transparency by China's US listed companies. Concerns that biopharma could be the next industry to be scrutinized by Beijing sent shares falling in Hong Kong and the US beginning July 23rd, after a government directive related to the education sector essentially turned China's burgeoning after-school tutoring industry from a for-profit industry to a non-profit industry, and I believe it banned homework for first and second graders, which is a big hit among many parents that I spoke with last week. As the downturn reached its nadir on Tuesday, bellwethers such as Beijing and Xi Lab, two of the more established biotechs in the country, had fallen double digits. By Tuesday's close, the China Biopharma ETF, which tracks biopharma stocks listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, or NASDAQ, had fallen 17%. Before the slide began, the ETF had been up nearly 100% since its launch by Long Car Investments three years ago. But by Wednesday, the comeback was on. The China equivalent of the SEC calmed nerves by reaching out to bankers and big-time investors, and most stocks were back in the green by week's end, with many, if not all, making round trips. Josh, you've been watching China for more than a decade now. What are the key takeaways for you coming out of this week? Yeah, good question, Jeff. And I thought your stories covering it this past week were right on point. And that is certainly a lot of volatility over the last week. I think one important thing to note is that much of that volatility was really triggered by other industries, so not necessarily in the biotech or life sciences industry. And I think that might have certainly spooked some investors as to China biotech would be next in the crosshairs. But I think if you take a step back and look at the narrative over a longer time frame and what China has been trying to do over the last 10 years or so is, I think, more reassuring. Most China watchers would say that the China government has very much been trying to build and foster an innovative biopharma industry, both from a regulatory perspective. So there's certainly been wholesale changes at the China FDA, the NMPA. And there's also been significant changes on the reimbursement side. And then certainly on the capital market side, it's been pretty amazing what's happened. I mean, just think about it. There was no Hong Kong 
biotech chapter on the Hong Kong exchange four years ago. That's just a three-year-old chapter. Same with the Shanghai Star, only two years old, launched in 2019. So I think if you look over a longer time, the Chinese government has signaled to investors that it is looking to build an innovative industry that in general should be good for China and investors as well as Western investors who are investing in some of these Hong Kong stocks. But it certainly was a volatile week. I do think in addition to what you mentioned at, at the beginning, there also was a indication over this past weekend from one of the Chinese regulators, the regulator that regulates the China Securities Regulatory Commission, which is similar to the SEC in China, noting that it had seen the SEC statement and was continuing to commit to opening up and looking to further collaborate with the SEC. So I think there's a lot to be worked out, certainly, but uh, some of the indications, at least at the end of the week, I think signaled that hopefully we'll have a more stable situation in the coming weeks. Yeah, I agree there, Josh. And even with the reforms to the education sector, three longtime investors in China Biotech who I spoke with said these reforms were not unexpected. They'd been teased for months now, but all three said what was surprising was the speed with which the government implemented this. So China has been, as Maytech Global Investments' Ingrid Yin told me, the government has been moving in recent years to curb prices in healthcare, housing, and education. The government's looking to encourage young parents to have more children in the wake of the country's updated policy, allowing families to have up to three children as a way to stimulate growth. And... She said that China's moves to update rules on data privacy and antitrust matters are no different than anywhere else in the world as technology companies play increasingly important roles globally. And as you note, Josh, the regulatory reforms have been for biotech going on at a steady pace since 2015. And even with the turmoil of the past week, everyone I spoke with thought that the reforms are good. China is moving to preserve innovation by making sure its next generation of innovators can compete. But Josh, we have a lot of companies, Chinese companies that are only listed on NASDAQ. What do you think companies like this are thinking after this past week? They've been caught in the crosshairs of Beijing and Washington over the last yeah. few years. No, I think that's a great question, Jeff. And I, I think that is important that this has been an ongoing story now for several years. I think everyone who's listening probably remembers when the previous administration put in the new FCPA rules and regulations that did also have a big impact on sentiment related to Chinese investors in U.S. biotech, but also I think sentiment toward China biotech. So this has been a, a fairly drawn out story with peaks and valleys. I think for the China biotechs that are listed on NASDAQ, I guess I would say I would be surprised if most of them are not well into contingency planning to keep optionality, depending on what happens with the regulations and U.S.-China relations. Uh, so you have some of the leading companies like Beijing and Xi already are dual listed, right, on the Hong Kong exchange. And then you had another leading NASDAQ-listed China Biotech last week say that they were going to pursue a dual listing on the uh, Shanghai star market. Nothing in that statement specifically referencing what's happening in the macro condition, 
but I think it's probably indicative of what many of the China biotechs may be doing in terms of making sure that they have options depending on what happens. And then you also have a long queue of Chinese biotechs that are looking to IPO. It's probably likely that we'll continue to see what we've seen over the last couple of years now, where the majority of them are looking to list either on Hong Kong or Shanghai Star. I'd be surprised you know, if that doesn't stay as the same narrative or perhaps even accelerate, particularly given how much money has been raised via some of these IPOs, particularly on the Hong Kong exchange. Yeah. And this year, I think we've had 16 or 17 China biotechs go public. Only three of those were on NASDAQ. The yeah. rest were either Hong Kong or Shanghai. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think another one to look at is LinkDoc, which is a Chinese biopharma play. It's not a therapeutics company itself. It's essentially a, a big oncology, big data company that many Western and, and China biotechs partner with. And they had announced plans to go IPO on NASDAQ, but had pulled that IPO shortly after the controversy related to Didi. And I think you could see, again, more hesitancy for Chinese biotechs or biotech-related companies listing on NASDAQ, at least in the short term, particularly any with a VIE structure, which is what LinkDuck was as well. Yeah. So a couple of things there. Didi is the ride-hailing service, sort of the Uber Lyft of China. And it went public, I think, in early June. Apparently, they didn't tick all of the boxes as far as China's government was concerned. And we've seen this a couple of times now. New regulation regarding data privacy came out about two weeks after Didi went public. And Didi promptly lost 40% of its value after its apps were pulled from the App Store. One investor that I spoke with, Brad Longcar of Longcar Investments, he traces all of the current tensions all the way back to Jack Ma's Ant Group, the fintech company, which was looking to have the largest IPO in history at about $35 billion. Right around the time that they're about to list, Jack Ma gave a speech that criticized the financial structure in China. And he disappeared for a few months. And when he surfaced, Ant Group had become a financial holding company that did not go public. At that point, you can see biotech passing tech in terms of ETFs that track both sectors. And now quickly, uh, just the VIE structure, this is a structure that is used by some biotechs, not many biotechs actually, but some companies in certain sectors in China as a way to attract foreign investment. However, it creates a shell company that has a service contract with a Chinese operating company. These are used, I think, mostly by companies such as Burning Rock, GeneTron that are doing genomics, sensitive area. What I heard is there's probably not going to be a crackdown, but I think companies should be looking to prepare themselves for increased scrutiny on data privacy. So it could slow down the pace of going public, particularly in the U.S. for companies. But that brings us to our China Healthcare Summit where if you go, you'll get to learn about a lot of these issues in depth from the key opinion leaders of China. 
themselves. Josh, you're organizing this along with Bay Helix. So what can you tell me? Yeah, so this is what you've been covering the last uh, week is certainly going to be a topic we're going to address at the uh, 8th China Summit, which is November 16th to 19th. We do organize, BioCentury organizes that event with a group called Bay Helix, which is the leading professional society for China life sciences executives. And we also organize it in collaboration with McKinsey and Company, which issues a great report each year on the China biotech ecosystem. Each year has a different theme. And this year's theme is really going to be focused on China biotech. Because I think one thing that everyone should understand is that there has been a tremendous amount of financing of China biotechs over the last several years, and quite a few companies now that BioCentury is following that are looking to be globally competitive. And that might be listing on Hong Kong, might be listing on NASDAQ, but regardless of where they list, they are looking to develop increasingly best-in-class and first-in-class. And I think you're seeing that in some of the deal flow also, right? We're starting to see Chinese biotechs now out-license ex-China rights to Western biopharma. As an example, there was a big deal last year where IMAP, the China Biotech, out-licensed rights to oncology compound to AbV. So we're seeing that. We're also seeing more China-to-China deals as these companies develop. There was a big deal last month or so between two Hong Kong-listed China Biotechs in event and Ascentage, which also, I think, really caught the imagination of the cross-border community. So for this year, we're going to really look at the evolution of these China biotechs at our China Summit, and we're going to talk about how much capital has been raised by China biotechs and how those companies are going to now return ROI to both investors as well as to patients. That'll be a big focus of the event. It'll be hybrid this year, so that means if you can make it to Shanghai, we will have a venue there. If you can't, all of the content, panels, presentations, and so forth will be available on our digital platform. And if you register by September 16th, there is an early bird rate. So please check it out. You can find out about that rate as well as additional items related to the program at our website, which is biocenturychinasummit.com. And we hope to see you there either in person or digitally. One of the panels I'm really looking forward to is a session that's going to be moderated by Tony Chen, who is a partner at Jones Day in Shanghai. He joined us for a special edition of the podcast last week to discuss China's new equivalent to the Hatch-Waxman Act. It's really worth tuning into that and registering for the conference so you can learn about China's new IP law, which is taking effect as we speak. In fact, today in China time, so August 3rd, is a deadline for innovators with approved drugs to list their patents in China's equivalent of the orange book. So if you're an innovator with an approved drug in China and you haven't done that yet, I guess you have about 12 hours. Good for you to get on that. And hey, let's turn to translational news. The distillery, we're having this segment once a month, timed with our release of the latest crop of translational news that we are highlighting. Karen, what's on tap this week? And for those listeners who may not know, what is the distillery? So the distillery, much like our party at JPM in years past, in that way, we bring the best whiskeys to the biotech community. And in our translational distillery, we bring what we think are the most interesting 
translationally relevant papers to our community as well. Basically, we are combing the abstracts from about 30 of the top journals in biomedical research, looking for things that are really directly poised to either introduce new targets for diseases or new technologies to go after targets of interest. We've got a bunch of stuff published in our distillery, but a couple I'll highlight today. One gets into this, um, Jeff and I were having a bit of a spat about when can you use the word nanobodies, ablinks use it. And uh, here the authors are from this cluster of Dutch and Belgian universities that uh, was part of the ablinks formation. So I'm going to go ahead and use the word nanobodies. Um, All right, Paul is watching you though. (laughs) So it was actually two papers that we covered in a single distillery item from the same group looking at US-28 targeting nanobodies. So US-28 is a GPCR that's actually expressed by cytomegalovirus. Interestingly, it's this latent virus infection, which there's the infection itself, but it can also often be associated with glioblastoma. One of the papers took a look at a inverse agonistic nanobody that hit the extracellular portion of US-28, which what it did was it increased the expression of immediate early genes by the virus in cells but didn't fully activate its replication, which basically allowed the latent virus to come out of hiding enough for the immune system to target it, but not enough to start replicating. That was interesting. And they saw some T-cell activation when co-cultured with T-cells from CMV-positive patients. Then in the second paper, they did a different approach where they had an antibody hitting the intracellular portion of US-28, and they were delivering that lentivirally into glioblastoma spheroids to inhibit tumor growth. Looks like portfolio of nanobodies that is coming out of these Dutch and Belgian teams. And it says that patent applications are filed, but licensing status is unknown as of yet. But that was one thing I thought was interesting. Another one also in Nature Communications was around a base editing approach from Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania for I'm going to try to say this correctly, mucopolysaccharidosis type 1. So this is a lethal lysosomal storage disease that's caused by a G2A mutation in an enzyme gene that codes alpha l idoronidase. How do you do, Paul? <laughs> Paul's our judge of correct pronunciation on the podcast today. NPS. Well, so what was interesting there is that they actually they use an AAV9 vector to deliver the base editing material in utero to treat this in basically fetal mice. And then when the mice were born at six months, they were able to show reductions in pathogenic phenotypes. And interestingly, they had editing all throughout a bunch of different disease-relevant tissues, but not in the germline, so not in the ovaries or sperm-containing cells of these mice, indicating that the gene edits would not be passed on to the next generation of mice. And as we all know, that's sort of an important issue in the gene editing, base editing discussion. Thanks, Karen. The distillery was in our weekly collection and it's also on our website. We've got a lot of items this month for you to check out. We do a separate email that rounds up all of the distillery that comes out once a month. It's coming out this week. Let's turn to our deals and focus. Paul, take it away. Sure. Well, there were two, and you'll catch me pronouncing a couple of difficult but disease names and such along the way. 
let's start with Aristea. You teased it on the way in. So Aristea really did two things at the same time. One is a traditional Series B round, a $63 million funding led by Fidelity. But the other deal was a little more interesting. Arena Pharmaceuticals committed $60 million upfront, plus a $10 million contribution to the Series B round to help fund Phase 2B development of Aristea's lead program to treat a rare blistering disorder called palmoplantar pustulosis. And in exchange, Arena received an option to buy Aristea outright. We've seen fairly little M&A lately. With the IPO window still wide open, a lot of companies are taking that route. And buyout deals have been few and far between. But the way Aristea's CEO, James McKay, told it during our interview, the deal made sense to the biotech as it feels its way through its options going forward. For one thing, Arena wants to see broader development of the product, which is called RIST 4721, targets CXCR2. Part of the money Arena is putting in will fund clinical trials to treat two other diseases, hydradenitis suppurativa and inflammatory bowel disease. And then Aristea is also moving forward in two more indications, familial Mediterranean fever and Bichette's disease. So before long, Aristea will be studying the program in five indications altogether. Moreover, the biotech wants to in-license some more products. McKay said they're working on term sheets already. So it's building a pipeline behind the lead product. And the way it works out after the phase 2B study, Arena can buy the whole thing, get a pipeline in a product, mm-hmm. plus a few more early stage projects. Or if it passes on the option, it's still an investor in a well-funded biotech that's diversifying its pipeline. Optionality all the way around, but with one pre-negotiated option, that would be a good outcome for investors and a good fit for Arena, which already has expertise in dermatology and GI disorders. Paul, you mentioned the lead indication. I can't begin to say it. <laughs> Palmo plantar pustulosis. Yeah. Yes. I, I know it's serious stuff, but wow, that's a mouthful. What's the landscape like there? Well, it's a market that a few companies are going after. It's, it's not a tiny indication, although it does qualify as a rare disease. It's an autoimmune disorder that results in blistering on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. There aren't any approved products in the West uh, although there is one in Japan, it's Tremphia from J&J, a MAB that originated with Morphosis. And there are a few more MABs that have reached mid to late stage testing, generally ones that are approved for psoriasis. You've got Brodalumab, the IL-17 blocker from Kiowa Kirin, and AbbVie's Skyreezy, which targets IL-23, that's another. But McKay made the case that targeting neutrophils directly, which Aristea's product does, And it's also a once daily oral therapy. Those two things make RIST 4721 a differentiated option. There was a second deal last week, Paul, that piqued your interest and you wrote a little bit about. Eli Lilly is now working with a company called Kumquat Therapeutics on some immuno-oncology programs. What's happening there? Well, I did speak with Kumquat's CEO and that company is still being pretty quiet about what it's up to, but it's already very well funded. Again, quietly, uh, without much in the way of announcements, it's raised $106 million across the past two years or so. And now Lilly is handing over another $70 million up front in exchange for options on an undisclosed number of programs. So what is Kumquat doing? The CEO, Yi Liu, his name was, he was pretty cagey, although he said more will come out soon. Without disclosing much, he said they're a very innovation-focused biotech. And whatever that means, he pointed to his experience and the management team's prior experience with a company called Wellspring, as an example. Wellspring was an early mover in KRAS, which has become a very important target and now has one approved drug from Amgen. 
one of Wellspring's molecules was partnered out to J&J and has advanced in that pharma's hands. So the way that the CEO tells it, Wellspring was working on that target when not many other people thought it could be druggable many years ago. And now it looks like Kumquat is going in the same direction. He wouldn't say whether Lilly and Kumquat are collaborating on KRAS, but the implication was they're not going after any kind of tried and true areas, not just doing new approaches to older things or older targets everyone's worked on for a long time. They will be innovation focused in some way. That's really all he would disclose. Oh, tell me a little bit more about what Lilly gets. Do they get options to global rights? Not quite. Kumquat is holding on to the programs in greater China for now, although both partners may opt eventually to co-develop or co-commercialize in territories that the other holds. And for what it's worth, Kumquat's investors, there are a total of five, include two Asia-oriented funds, Lilly Asia Ventures, obviously associated with the partner Lilly, and Sequoia Capital China as well. And the CEO said explicitly that the decision to keep greater China rights does have to do with that and was for those investors' benefit. Kumquat doesn't have any presence in China yet. It's based in San Diego, but clearly in the longer view, there is a trans-Pacific angle to what they're doing as they grow. And also the CEO acknowledged that although it's very well-funded now, there will very likely be a Series B one day, and it figures to be a big round if things keep going the way they are. Who knows if they have designs on going public and where. We'll have to wait and see how all of that shakes out. Well, one of the kind of interesting, just connecting dots around things, obviously the company's not disclosing too much what it's doing yet, but the chair of their scientific advisory board is Kevin Shokat, a UCSF professor whose work was largely credited for helping crack open the KRAS field. And he was a founder of Wellspring as well. And he's been involved with Revolution and Effector and just all up and down the KRAS pathway. But it's just interesting kind of looking back at some of our past coverage and connecting dots when turned up something on Avidity, which Lily partnered with a long while back. And that was a company that also shared founders with Wellspring and Cora and that family. That was a Troy Wilson. Seems like some of the players familiar with each other and be interesting to see where this leads going forward. Yeah, I, I just wish they'd disclose more, but it sounds like details will come out later this year from Kumquat and maybe that will fill in the picture a little more too. Excellent. Well, good stuff, Paul and Karen and Josh. Thanks for joining us. As Josh said earlier, you can find out more about the China Healthcare Summit coming up this November on our website, biocentry.com. There you'll also find Paul's stories about the two deals you spoke about, as well as all of our distillery items that Karen lovingly edited. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.